African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the rights to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, thank you for joining us for a new week of uh, uh, African Dialogue. You tuned into Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I'm your host, Benjamin Mushatam. I'll be with you until 12 o'clock. And we're currently on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. Well, today we're going to be looking at an interesting story, actually a follow-up to what we've done in South Sudan. On the program today, we look at the call by the leadership of South Sudan for a South African African-like Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We'll look at that. But Anne Musa is standing by. She's going to give us our news. In the headlines, 12 freed members of former Libyan regime leader Muammar Gaddafi have been found dead. Guinea's president has sacked his communication minister and three others, and Eritrea's government has accused Ethiopia of launching an attack on its territory. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Moussa. Twelve former officials were the deposed regime of former Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi, who were recently freed from prison, have been found dead in the Libyan capital. The Libyan prosecutor's office, in a statement on its Facebook page, says the bullet-riddled bodies of the 12 former government officials who have not been identified were found in Tripoli on Friday. The United Nations Special Representative and head of the UN Support Mission in Libya Martin Kobler has denounced the killings and urged a rapid, a rapid and transparent investigation. Guinea's President Alpha Conde has sacked his communications minister and three others after they criticized his speech. President Conde has also summoned a fourth member of the ruling RPG party to respond to his queries. Conde described the officials as a bunch of dishonest ministers from the Malink tribe, a community he also represents. The president has promised to expose those engaged in financial malpractices within the government, adding that the culprits were mainly from his tribe. Eritrea's government has accused Ethiopia of launching an attack on its territory, Eritrea, fought a bloody border war with its neighbor between 1998 and 2000. Tensions between the Horn of African nations still persist. In a statement, the Information Ministry accused Ethiopia's Tigrayan People's Liberation Front of unleashing an attack against Eritrea on the Sorona Central Front. The front is close to the border and saw intense fighting during the border war that killed about 70,000 people. 
Sentencing proceedings are underway in the High Court in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, for murder convict Oscar Pistorius. Pistorius could face 15 years in jail, but his sentence could be reduced for, for time spent in prison. Pistorius was sentenced to five years for manslaughter for the murder of his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp, in 2013. But the conviction was upgraded to murder in December. Clinical psychologist Schultz says that in his opinion, Pistorius's condition is severe, hence he's not able to testify. Mental state examination of Mr. Pistorius, his thought content displayed preoccupation regarding the impending sentencing procedures, guilt and his future. He appeared to have limited energy and his concentration wavered. He had no perceptual disturbances. He displayed signs and reported symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorder and depressive disorder. His short to medium term memory was compromised, his judgment was intact and he had good insight. His manner was respectful and cooperative. Currently, in my opinion, he is not able to testify, lady. His condition is severe. Recapping the top stories, 12 freed members of former Libyan regime leader Muammar Gaddafi have been found dead. Guinea's President Alpha Conde sacked his communication minister and three others after they criticized his speech. And Eritrea's government has accused Ethiopia of launching an attack on its territory. Well, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Remember now, we're on Channel 802 if you're listening to us on DSTV. And remember online, we are on www.channelafrica.co.za. That's www.channelafrica.co.za. Well, as I mentioned today, we're going to be looking at the call by the leadership of South Sudan for a South African-like Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Now, let's just uh, look at the way that the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission was set up. It was actually established by the Government of National Unity in South Africa to help deal with what happened under apartheid. The conflict during this period resulted in violence and human rights abuses from all sides. No section of a society escaped these abuses. The TRC was based on the promotion of National Unity and the Reconciliation Act, which is number 34 of 1995. Dula Omar, who was South Africa's Minister of Justice at the time, had this to say about the creation of the TRC. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission is a product of South African conditions and arose out of the nature of South Africa's transition from apartheid domination to constitutional democracy. The framework of the TRC, its structures, and procedures were conceived and created by legislation passed by Parliament and promoted by the government of President Mandela. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission concept was not taken out of any textbook or theory. It is a product of South Africa's negotiated settlement and transition. The origin, dynamics and ethos which gave rise to the establishment of the TRC was not only the law which gave it birth, but the negotiation process designed to end the war in South Africa, to bring an end to over 300 years of colonialism and apartheid, and also negotiations designed 
to usher in a period of democracy, human rights and the rule of law. Well, that is the voice of Dula Omar, who is the former South Africa's Minister of Justice, talking about the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission. Now, the newly reconciled leaders of South Sudan have called for a South Africa-style Truth and Reconciliation Commission to heal the scars of a gruesome war in the world's youngest nation. President Savakir and the newly appointed Vice President Rek Machar said in a joint uh, statement that they were committed to ensuring that South Sudan never again went through a civil war. The two leaders said the Truth and Reconciliation Commission would have sweeping powers and be able to investigate everybody from the poorest farmer to the most powerful politician. Now, to assist us on this, we joined on the line by Lenyuem Kize, who is uh, from the TRC Reparations Committee, as well as Professor Leon Vessels, who is from the South African Human Rights Commission. Now, we're going to maybe look at things from a little bit of a South African perspective, but first and foremost, uh, the South Africa Truth and Reconciliation Commission was created to enable and promote reconciliation among South Africans who suffered human rights abuses and other injuries in the country's history. Now, looking back at uh, looking at this particular uh, style of the TRC, what made it actually stand aside and what made it actually, uh, you know, made it interesting? We've joined on the line by Klingyum Keys the TRC Reparations Commission, as I mentioned, and Professor Leon Vessels from the South African Rights Commission. Let's start that question with you, Thank you in terms of what made the TRC a unique uh, uh, setup. Uh, I think, you know, taking from what you read out, what was said by Minister Dalla Omar at the time when he introduced uh, the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there was a total political commitment from the leadership, especially the majority party, which was then led by um, President Nelson Mandela, to say we have to have a balanced understanding of the nature and extent of gross human rights violations but from the abstract of Dalla Omar, mm, mm. The, the, the aim was not to pay revenge, but was to build the, the, the South Africa in line with constitutional democracy values. So I think I was stood up because people have expected the, the, the bloody transition. Mm. from apartheid uh, to democracy. But the, the, those uh, political, moral commitments from the leadership of, of, from all sides, I must say, it really made the visited Sierra Leone, the whole the continent got interested in how we're getting it right. Um, I, I would stop there for now. Mm. Let me move on to you, Professor Leon Vessels, in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of this whole framework of, of the uh, TRC itself. Was it effective enough? Because there are parts of society that really question how it actually reached different parts of society and who it actually appealed to. Your thoughts around the process in itself, especially when you think about the whole healing, reparational uh, perspective. 
first of all, let me just uh, make this uh, correction. I, I, I did serve on the South African Human Rights Commission for 10 years, but mm. I am currently not a serving commissioner. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, I think the TRC created a unique opportunity for us to, first of all, know our past. Uh, in many respects, South, South Africa's conflict was a hidden one. Mm. Um, there are many reasons to advance and explain this argument, one of them being that uh, during the states of emergency, uh, there were certain uh, laws in place and regulations in place which inhibited uh, publication of events as well as of quoting uh, uh, certain people affected by those uh, laws and regulations. So first of all, South Africa had to open up the, its past to understand its past before it could uh, even attempt to move forward. And that was a great opportunity which the TRC provided. Secondly, having listened to uh, what South Africans and those affected directly uh, by apartheid had to offer, a door or a window was opened to to uh, try to not not really compensate, but to be involved in the reparation, mm. uh, which was a responsibility the government had to take on itself. There, there was that opportunity. And thirdly, there was an opportunity for those who had been um, perpetrators in, in, in human rights violations to, uh, on the basis of telling the truth and, the, uh, and demonstrating that they had a political intention in mind to receive further prosecution and litigation. All of these things were very important, and they were spelled out by Mr. Dallar, Minister Dalla Omar uh, at the time. But I think our expectations were too high. Even the time constraint and the tremendous pressures under which the TRC had to operate, um, I think it's it's time to be a little modest and 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 be honest about the time constraint and pressures of of mm. the TRC. Mm. So to cut to the chase, it's fantastic that people look at at at, the, at our TRC and believe they can draw inspiration from that, mm. that is, is good enough. But I would caution that you have to take each and every nation's particular mm. history in consideration. You also have to take our history uh, in con consideration and uh, you have to be clear about the possible areas where we didn't live up to, uh, our own expectations. Sure, sure. Well, that's the voice of Professor Leon Vessels, who was a former commissioner at the, who is the former commissioner at the South African Human Rights Commission. We also have Klinguim Kize, who is uh, part, was part of also the TRC Reparations Committee. Hey, what are your thoughts in this regard? Hey, we know that uh, we're bringing this uh, conversation after there was a call in South Sudan for a South Africa-style Truth and Reconciliation Commission to 
heal the scars of a gruesome war in the world's youngest nation. Do you think that this is required, especially for a young uh, country such as South Sudan? Give us your thoughts. SMS us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. That's plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Or you can email us at info at channelafrica.org. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And my name is Benjamin Mushatama. I'll be with you until uh, 12 o'clock right now with 17 minutes past 11 o'clock Central African time. And if you're listening to us on shortwave, it's on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. On DSTV, we're on Channel 802. Remember, we've moved on from uh, Channel 902. Now we're on Channel 802. You can also stream us live online on www.channelafrica.co.za Now today we're looking at the issue of the TRC in South Africa, looking at its framework how it was actually setting up set up and we know that we're doing this because of the call by the leadership of South Sudan for a South, a- South African like Truth and Reconciliation Commission and we're speaking to people also central of this uh, kind of process. We've got Lingam Key it's part of the TRC uh, Reparations Committee. We've got uh, Professor Leon Vessels, who was uh, from the, who was part of the South African Human Rights Commission. Claiming we're coming to you. How does it feel like a South Africa to hear countries such as South Sudan calling for our kind of TRC process themselves? Do you think this is something that South Africa can pride itself in? important to acknowledge the value of what we did. If people, I, I don't want even to be naive to assume that when they are calling for a South African type of a truth commission, they mean they will define the, the mandate exactly as we did. Mm. So for me, what the message, the call is to, if I was, uh, the way I understand it is that these people, they've gone through a, 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 a confusing phase where they thought they've attained their liberation and they find themselves losing all the gains. So they want national consensus in terms of what went wrong, who were people who were responsible for this, and how, what do they need to do to ensure that Never again do they find themselves in that situation. So from that point of view, I'm, I'm really, I feel, I feel honored having served in this space of transitional justice, that there is openness and a desire to get it right. Mm-hmm. But I want to just say a few things that if I look at what we did, we could have achieved better if we focused on civil mobilization before the commission was set up. Remember, in our case, 
there were people who were, for instance, opposed to any form of amnesty, the amnesty clause. They just wanted to see all perpetrators being tried in a court of law, which was against what Dala Omar had said the CRC should stand for. So civil mobilization and the, and the, and the formulation of the mandate from the public point of view, for me, is important. If the people could unite in terms of saying, look, we will allow a quasi-legal process, but the strength, the, the whole desire, the primary goal, is not mm. to promote impunity. Those who could be held accountable will, but for young people at a community level, the, the young soldiers will give them amnesty of some kind. Whatever they want, civil mm. society should come in together. And also resource mobilization. Mm. The worst thing is to set up a commission and find it difficult even to produce material to communicate through radio stations throughout the country so that people are kept on board. You lose what you meant to gain. Mm. But, but the whole the idea, in our case, for instance, I always say the commission helps to break the resistance. Remember, it's not everybody who was convinced that we should go forward the way we're going. There were people who were still anti-democracy, who were attacking the airport. There was violence all over. You know, perpetrators don't disappear the, the moment you, you declare ceasefire. They continue. So the TRC have to break the resistance and build national consensus on mm. the kind of South Africa ideal democratic state we had struggled for. Mm. It's interesting because um, this process is one that's rarely adopted, the whole idea of a transitional process or transitional justice, uh, Professor Leon Vessels, as was highlighted there uh, by Tengiwem uh, Kize. Uh, Professor, your thoughts around maybe Africa adopting the same approach of not just going into new governments immediately, but also take on that stance of a transitional process? Uh, look, uh, I am not an expert in South Sudan, albeit that I have been to South Sudan and I have sat down uh, and uh, spoken and debated informally with a variety of, mm-hmm. of role players there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a complex issue and uh, one has to understand exactly uh, the challenges a new nation faces after they had been involved in an internal conflict, revolution, war, what, uh, whatever the case might have been. And I think the challenging thing uh, is to, to arrive at a point, as was stated uh, by, by my colleague uh, who's participating here, that you have to try and build through this process a national consensus. And the national consensus does not mean that you will turn a blind eye to what had happened in the past, be that on, on, a, on a civil rights level, on a political level, or on a socio-economic level. You have to address 
those issues because they will simply not disappear simply because you are now shaking hands and uh, have have settled uh, and agreed to a new uh, dispensation. Mm -hmm. Those are critical issues that will remain there. And I think the one thing that we are learning right now, 20 years later, that people on some issues that were not properly dealt with 20 years ago still haunt us. A variety of them. The inequalities in our society still haunt us. Racial prejudice mm. still haunt us. So you never arrive. Uh, it's an ongoing process. But you are, you achieve, you, you, you reach a remarkable stage when you agree that we have to move forward and you set out your objectives. Mm. It's also powerful in terms of looking at the process in itself on the level in which, you know, post um, uh, the the whole TRC process, the whole transparency and the availability of the documents of the TRC. And seems to have been a big call that's been made by various stakeholders, especially in civil society, to say we'd like to see those particular TRC documents also just in terms of accessibility to the public and those are other areas where the TRC has failed in terms of making accessibility to the whole process in itself in terms of documents uh, your thoughts around that could that also bring more healing in a form of a different form of a reparation uh, you know, you know, go ahead Lingyue, go ahead I'll, professor I'll come back yeah, to you you know, if um, you're thinking of uh, the the whatever you call it, some people call it, call it truth and justice. Mm. Some they say truth and reconciliation. Whatever is important for the country. But you know, looking at what we did, I think we needed to have um, a ministry initially, whether within justice, to deliberately refer to it. And justice and reparation, mm. so that it is not seen as a one-off, because that's where we get into trouble. You find that the objectives are noble, and they've got good outcomes, mm-hmm. but if disappear within 18 months, then people lose, they lose the meaning. They actually get upset. In our case, for instance, it was a process which was intense, with good resources for a short period of time and good leadership. But the mere fact that we didn't have the capacity to investigate, for instance, further the cases where we could have ensured that there's justice for victims, it, it weakens, uh, undermines the good work, which could be a lesson somewhere else but also the plight of those who lost out the most, which mm. I think the late Minister Dalla Omar referred to, mm. and even our own constitution. The preamble of our constitution gives a mandate to a, a new government to pay attention to the victims, basically, because with any uh, deathly uh, consequences, they are victims. So, to to fold to stop the process up, abruptly 
for me, it's too risky and it undermines the good work. So mm. if any other country like Sudan wants a case study of what has gone wrong, yeah. it would be important then to focus on this over a, a, a reasonably long period of time so as to eliminate high levels of dissatisfaction with what was achieved. Well, Professor Vessels, I'll come to you. I want to hear your thoughts on that. Sounds like you also agree to the assertions made there by Lingwe Mkise. You're joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Benjamin Mushatama. Uh, We're on the frequency on shortwave uh, 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. And uh, you can join us on DSTV on 802. Remember, you can stream us live on www. ChannelAfrica.co.za, and we want to hear your views. So you can also tweet us at African Dialogue. That's at African Dialogue. Do you think that a South African-led Truth and Reconciliation Commission could work for uh, 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 Africa's uh, youngest country, uh, which is South Sudan? We know there's a lot of conflicts there. Also, there seems to be a lot of uh, conversations happening around the leadership of that country. Give us your thoughts you can also sms us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero that's plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero let me give you that email address again it's info at channelafrica.org yes you are listening to african dialogue and uh, we always zoom into the big subjects of what's happening on the continent of africa and uh, we'll be back uh, let's take a quick break and we'll continue this conversation Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is African Dialogue. You're with me, Benjamin Mushatama. If you're listening to us online, you're on www.channelafrica.co.za. And remember, if you're listening to us from America, you can also call us uh, on 605-475-1711. You can listen to us in that manner by calling us on 605-475-1711. We always uh, uh, love it when you listen to us also from that part of the world. That's if you are in the U.S. And uh, remember, we've migrated to Channel 802 on DSTV. It's a recent thing, so do spread the word on uh, that particular issue. Today, we are looking at uh, really uh, a country such as South Sudan emulating uh, the whole TRC process that we saw in South Africa, which was one that was pivotal uh, to help deal with what happened under apartheid. We know that 
that there were a lot of human rights abuses there. Uh, but people also question the legal element of it because now we're seeing more robust forms of dealing with the human rights abuses and violence. We know that the ICC is there. We recently had that court's uh, case that took place in, on, on the continent. So there's a whole lot of uh, different ways and measures that have been utilized. But the TRC was one way that was adopted by South Africa. Uh, Professor Leon Vessels, you seemed to agree with some of the assertions made there by Shenyu and Kize, highlighting the fact that, um, you know, the process should not be one that is just one that's temporary, but should seem, she was asserting that it should be a long-term program. Look, I, 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 uh, I don't in any way want to sound like someone who is uh, undermining the good work uh, and the good intentions of the TRC. So mm. when, I, when, I, when I raise critical points, it is in support of uh, honestly looking back mm. and mm. applauding what was, what was done. Sure. But I think one of the biggest mistakes that was made was to believe that after the TRC process, the whole concept of building this nation of of reconciliation, of reconstruction, would take care of itself. I mean, that was, uh, I think, a very sad moment. Uh, and and whether one one had a particular ministry is is not something. That, that I have given a lot of thought to, except to say that it had to be something which was properly resourced and that had to receive government support uh, because I don't think you can square up to a challenge as huge as the one we face, even after the TRC, by simply leaving it in the hands of civil society, non-governmental organizations. The challenge was simply too big. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of, uh, you know, I'm also interested in um, the idea of uh, the the idea of leadership, you know, for a process like this, I know there was a huge selection process in terms of ensuring that this was a process that was uh, integral and also integrated different stakeholders because sometimes processes like this can be one-sided and uh, it seemed it was balanced and different stakeholders from uh, the government, civil society, religious groups were part of this uh, process of reconciliation. How did South Africa get that element correct? I, I think it's a question of leadership. Mm. For instance, the act that you referred to earlier, the promotion of National Unity mm. and Reconciliation Act number 34 of 1995 gave, uh, empowered the president to appoint commissioners. But the president, Madiba then, what he did he allowed all political parties to, to, to be involved in the process. To, uh, all commissioners were screened and approved by a committee uh, which was representative. So it, it, it's really a question of leadership. And I think knowing the kind of leader Matiba was, I remember it was time we went to see him. He was uncomfortable because the leader of the 
majority opposition party, FWD class, was not in a meeting. Mm. He didn't even want to speak with us and talk. So he, he, he was open and, and transparent in the way he did things. But, you know, even all the difficulties with permission and sometimes comparing with the ICC, where you find that... I, 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 have, I was at one time an ambassador in the heat. Mm-hmm. And I was the vice president of state parties. Mm-hmm. So when African countries are, are, are grumbling against what is going on, and I compare and I look back and I say, I can understand what are difficulties. You'll find that one leader is taken in isolation, is being tried in the hate. And, you know, in any conflict, you find that the network of perpetrators, you know, it's so, it becomes so important if you want to ensure that never again. From an activist on the ground, the police, and different players, the private sector. So if you isolate one person is tried far away, you find that all these other critical players, things which you could pick up as a TFC, we, we knew even the role played by by the private sector, even companies, how they contributed to the conflict. So it's it, it, it really is important to acknowledge the shortcomings, but also the value for me is enormous because mm. it's, it's less threatening. I saw when we went to Rwanda, for instance, we assisted them with the Rwandan law post mm. the genocide. Mm. They were opposed to any form of reconciliation. But what was good, gradually they moved around. We saw the, the perpetrators of the genocide were packed in prison. People would stand, it would be full with solemn food. They came around with the Rwandan law, the Kachacha court. Which mm-hmm. were less different from the traditional court of law, mm-hmm. where the issues on one person was like a traditional African lehuta, uh, mm-hmm. where in a village people come together, try to understand who did what, what wrong, what was their understanding, and so for me that came closer to an assumption that there's more than one person should be tried in a traditional way. We should uh, broaden our understanding mm. of the politics and its dynamics. Mm. Professor, let me end it with you, Professor Leon Vessels, in terms of looking at that element that Tlingue uh, is highlighting about that integrity of leadership and also how we actually need to get that balance of uh, stakeholders who are involved in these processes to get fair representation because that seems to be also the issue as was highlighted by Tlingue there when you look at uh, the ICC and also the cases that have been actually zoomed into there and uh, it seems like it's uh, an issue that is very concerning especially for African countries look uh, to, to, to negotiate peace to make peace to love peace is, is, is a daunting it's a daunting challenge and uh, I am once again I am not uh, trying to to score cheap points. Mm. I think what South Africa really tried to do is to 
let each and every one who participated in the process believe that there was someone somewhere in the TRC that would hear and understand them. Not justifying what had happened, but to understand and uh, what uh, what was happening. Now, uh, from the experience that I've had from abroad, people found this absolutely extraordinary that... Uh, that those of us who were on opposing sides of opposite sides of the divide could sit down and talk in the presence of each other and of outside observers about these matters. I attended the summit, which was chaired by uh, President Thabo and Becky, and and the role players were there, the South African role players from the different side of the divide. And uh, those who participated just couldn't believe what they saw there. And I think that is really at the heart of it, is how do we learn to bridge the divide? Mm. Not, not sugarcoating the divide, mm. not pretending that the divides don't exist, but how do we jointly try to bridge the divide? It sounds like an uneasy process in itself, but thank you both for giving us your time. Thank you to Professor Leon Vessels, who's a former member of the South African Human Rights Commission. Thank you as well. Klingu Mkizo is also part of the TRC Reparations Committee. Thank you both for giving us your time, and thank you for your analysis and giving us that informed insight into that process itself of the TRC. Thank you very much. Well, that's how we wrap it up. Thank you for uh, listening to us. But we're going to have a song just to break things up before we introduce our econ news. We've got uh, Jonas Ngwangwa. He's an exile himself during the time of apartheid. Great musician. This one is titled uh, Freedom for Some.
Well, that's the sentiment for freedom from uh, Jonas Nguangwa. That song is titled Freedom for Some. That takes us to 11.45 Central African time. We've got Joalani Tulo standing by to give us our business news. Thank you, Benjamin. Good morning. Oak Bay CEO of Resources and Energy, Nazim Hawa, says that allegations against the company are possibly an attempt to stop business with its banking institution. This comes after a weekend newspaper report suggested the Reserve Bank and the Financial Intelligence Center were investigating the Gupta family following transactions in their accounts that the Bank of Borodia holds. The newspaper report alleges that there is suspicion that the accounts were used to siphon money from from the country to destinations such as Dubai. Hawa says that the report is baseless. I think that is the aim of the allegations, to stop them doing business. Four of the local banks have closed our bank accounts. Certainly we have moved to another international bank to work with us. It looks to me like the agenda is to stop that bank working with us. What we're very clear about is not one single cent of cash generated by our company in South Africa has left this country ever, ever since we launched the company. And we're open to scrutiny on that issue. Belgium and Rwanda have agreed to increase the volume of investments. Rwanda is a former Belgium colony but has made it clear that while the European country has been its longtime supporter, it should refrain from meddling in Rwandan politics. Silvanese Karamera has more. The discussion was part of the Belgian foreign minister's trip to the Great Lakes region. In this encounter, the two ministers highlighted some areas of their discussions ranging from both countries to the political grounds in the Great Lakes region. Kenya's biggest telecoms company, Safaricom, is joining up with a local software firm to launch a ride-hailing company to take on Uber as it seeks new sources of revenue. Safaricom CEO Bob Collymore says Safaricom and Nairobi-based software developer Craft Silicon will launch the app called Little Cabs in the next three weeks. Uber operates in several African countries. The Development Bank of Rwanda has entered a 15 million US dollar facility agreement with the Arab Bank for Economic Development in Africa to boost its lending capacity to the private sector. The signing ceremony took place yesterday at the Arab Bank for Economic Development in Africa headquarters in Khartoum, Sudan. The BRD chief executive signed on the side of the BRD. And finally, Sudan's annual inflation rate has risen to 13.98% in May from 12.85% in April. Prices soared in Sudan after South Sudan ceded in 2011. In December, the Sudanese pound fell to its lowest rate on the parallel market since 2011. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 15.20 to the South African rand, at 10.78 to the Botswana Pula and at 10.68 to the Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.70 to the British pound and 0.88 to the euro. On the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,274 and platinum at $985 an ounce. Finally, the price of burnt crude oil is at $50.05 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Chulo.
Well, it's time for us to move on and let's quickly get our sports news. We've got Fixozo. Uh, uh, Fixozo is coming in and he's going to give us our sports news. That's Fixozo. And in our sports update, we're starting off with football news. The Confederation of African Football, CAF, has written to Football Association of Zambia, FAS, to furnish them with details regarding their 2017 Africa Cup of Nations qualifier against Guinea-Bissau. FAS had notified CAF about allegations of the Guinea-Bissau goalkeeper, Papa Masembaye Fall, who was reported to be born in Senegal. Zambia lost to Guinea-Bissau by three goals to two in the qualifiers in their own backyard. Our Zambian correspondent, Namuchana Namuchana, has more. We had an opportunity to talk to Ponga well, who said uh, after they notified CAF last week, as, as, as he told us last week, he said they, they didn't lodge in the complaint with CAF, but they just notified CAF. But in, in return, CAF was asked to the Football Association of Zambia fans to finish them with more details. So the, 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 the only thing that the Ponga hasn't told us are the details. We are told to tell everybody what kind of details uh, we have sent to CAF. And UEFA has threatened to disqualify England and Russia from Euro 2016 if there is any further violence by fans. It has begun disciplinary proceedings against Russia, but not England, after totally unacceptable scenes at Saturday's England-Russia game. Footage appeared to show Russia fans rushing at England supporters after the Euro 2016 1-0 draw in Marseille. English Football Association Chief Executive Martin Glenn says the violence between Russian and English fans at the end of the Euro 2016 match was the worst he had seen for decades. Well, it was shocking. It's not, I've not seen scenes like that in a football stadium for, for, for decades. Um, we were surprised, the, we were worried because we knew for a while that uh, England fans had been able to get tickets from the, uh, the, the Russian website, um, but the segregation in the ground clearly wasn't strong enough to, uh, to stop the terrible scenes that, that we witnessed. So it was very upsetting, um, must have been really, really scary for the people involved. Now, as to what sanctions UEFA have formally charged the Russian Football Association for the uh, disorder in the ground, both for the crowd violence, also the setting off of flares and other things. So we'll let UEFA deal with that, but they, they, they clearly are holding uh, Russia to blame for that. Glenn has advice for any English fans travelling to their remaining games. It, it's clearly there's been a problem. So there's, a, there's antisocial behaviour where fans are going out there to soak up the atmosphere if they're not going to the, to the ground. But, you know, it, it's, it's causing trouble for a, for a stretched French police that have got other things to worry about. So I think that's, a sort of, that's bad. Unfortunately, what we seem to have seen on top of that, particularly yesterday, is probably a level of criminality from others, including organised Russian gangs and, and locals, really really changing the scene totally and what the FA would say to England fans is look you know support your team respect the locals where you're staying but the best way to support the England team is to have a have a drink sing a song but be respectful otherwise it's a problem 
In rugby news, junior Springbok coach David Theron called for his team to leave their performance significantly in the World Cup Rugby Under-20 in Manchester to keep alive their hopes of winning the title. The junior Springboks suffered a 19-13 defeat against Argentina on Saturday at the AJ Bell Stadium in the second pool match. This followed a 59-19 victory against Japan in the opening round. The team will face France in their final round-robin match on Wednesday and with New Zealand, Australia, South Africa and Wales all tied on six lock points after the first two rounds. It could be a battle between these sides for the final semi-final berth. Theron says they have to lift their game significantly in the match against France because the performance against Argentina was not good enough and they paid a high price for that. And finally with golf news, China's Wu Ashun has won the Lyonnais Open at the Diamond Country Club in Austria by one shot from Spain's Adrian Otegi. Mark Tompkins reports. The two had been neck and neck coming down the straight after birdies on 15 and 16 for the Spaniard, but a bogey on 17 gave Wu his opportunity and he didn't waste it to win his second title on the European Tour, but first on European soil. Richard McAvoy took a creditable third place after a final round 69 and another Englishman, James Morrison, was fourth after a 68. Xander Lombard, the South African, didn't really get going today. A two-over par round of 74 for him, a double bogey on 14 really cost him. He finished at nine under par and Gary Stahl headed up a group of players on eight under among them defending champion Chris Wood the best round of the week for him to finish off with a 68 but it's Wuashin the champion he finished at 13 under par with a one-shot advantage to lift the title that's your sport news this hour Well, that's how we wrap it up. Thank you for joining us. This is uh, African Dialogue. Remember, we come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. You're welcome to tweet us at African Dialogue or you can uh, find us at Channel Africa One. That's our other handle. Remember, we're on Facebook. Go to the Channel Africa page and you can SMS us your thoughts on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Email us your thoughts as well. Our email address is info at channelafrica.org. Thank you to our listeners who come from America. Remember, if you know anyone who wants to listen to Channel Africa via the America, uh, you can actually call us on 605-475-1711. That's 605-475-1711. That's how we wrap it up. Until tomorrow, from me, Benjamin Mushatama, God bless. <laughs>